Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away Ow. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films. And from 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... His uh, performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, okay. yes, right. fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Yeah. Oh, so Directed good. by I... Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and it, there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. The hunt begins, number one. The crew battles each other in simulated war games. Computers report heavy damage to the Enterprise. Bring us about, Ensign. Maximum shields. But a surprise ambush traps them in a fight for survival. That's no ghost attacking the Enterprise. That's real. Where are my weapons? Unavailable, sir. The connections have been fused. On Star Trek, the next generation. Welcome back to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries for episodes and films of the Star Trek franchise with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans that made sure it got on the screen. This is Peter Holmstrom, and I'm a screenwriter for the sci-fi television show Pandora, as well as author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, a companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, in stores right now. And this is Lisa Clank. I was a writer for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And I currently have a short story out in the first issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. Season two of The Next Generation was hampered by the WGA strike. What was originally meant to be a 26-episode season was shortened to 22. Certain serialized elements, such as the rising threat of the Borg, had to be abandoned. And the season ended with the erroneous money-saving clip show of an episode, Shades of Grey. However, stress and pressure breed a certain creative energy. 
And the final few episodes of the season contain some of the most creative episodes of the first two seasons, which firmly helped to solidify many character and plot elements which would define Star Trek as a whole for the next 10 years. On today's show, we are joined by David Kemper, a writer producer for such shows as Far Escape and Sequest 2032, and wrote two episodes for The Next Generation, one of which we're here to talk about today, Peak Performance. David Kemper, thanks for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, guys. I'm a fan. That's great. Tell me about your history with Star Trek. Were you always a fan? Oh, my God. Uh, So I was, oh, I don't want to out myself. I was born in 1955. So I was the prime teenage boy watching with his four older boy cousins. And we watched every episode of Star Trek and were in love with it from day one. As a kid, I was supposed to be a lawyer, bailed on law school to become a writer. And always in the back of my head, I thought, I want to work on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just never thought it would come true. And this script and the story that's behind it kind of, uh, you never expect life to give you what you're going to get. And I ended up working on the show, uh, as a freelance writer for all the three scripts, I, uh, two for next gen and one for Voyager. So I was a freelance writer, but I was integrated into the show in a more profound way based on my history. And we can go over that and talk about that as we go forward. So did this originate as a, as a spec script? Well, do you want me to start? Sure. Go sure. For it. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, was, I came to California to be a writer. And as most writers and actors and directors don't get their first job that they want, I took a job writing game show questions, which led me to KCBS writing news copy and advertising, which led me to CBS Network, where I was doing promotions and ended up working with the film department and the TV movie division. They were doing three movies a week. Then I got promoted into programming and I was supervising uh, hit shows that were on CBS in the 80s. And from that era, I met a guy named Maurice Hurley, who's the Mm -hmm. Star Trek universe is familiar with. Mm-hmm. He was partnered with Joel Surnow, who went on to create 24, among mm-hmm. other notable shows. And they were the executive producers of a show called The Equalizer, the original Equalizer with Edward Woodward. I was the account, the CBS guy in charge of that show, along with many others, like Wise Guy, Frank's Place, things like that. So I get to know Maury and Joel. CBS was bought by Larry Tish. And in cost-cutting, they got rid of standards and practices, which were the censors. And they gave the job to us. And our job was to supervise the writers and become friends with the writers and producers. And now I have a dual job that says, you cannot do that. Um, So that's an awkward position. There was one episode of The Equalizer that created such a hullabaloo that Maury and Joel quit, got fired. And I was the firer based on my boss is giving me the order, and they were quitting anyways. And the episode, I think it starred Adam Ant, and it had to do with white slavery. And they Mm. had a teenage girl pinned to a wheel, like a circus wheel, and they were rotating the wheel. She was in a white diaphanous dress, and she was screaming for her life while a bunch of rich sheiks were bidding to buy her to make her a wife. Wow. CBS said, we cannot do this episode. Maury and Joel, Joel in particular, pushed back and they made the episode and spent the money. 
Now there's a million dollar episode with this scene in it, which is absolutely abhorrent to a CBS television show. This is, there were only three networks. There weren't, it was all like, you know, nice and you got to do nice things and you can't treat kids badly. So I went to war with these guys and they quit. And I was told I had to fire them. No hard feelings, the business, they moved on. Um, I stayed friends with both. I get a call a couple of years later from Maury Hurley, who's now on Star Trek. They finished the first season and he says, can we go out to lunch? And I said, sure. So we went to Musso and Frank's, which is up in Hollywood, the famous Musso and Frank's. We had a, a table that we always sat at, and we've been doing this for years. Maury and I sit down and go, what's up? He goes, have you watched Next Gen, the first, the first season? I said, I have. He says, what do you think? And I said, oh, you know, I just, and he goes, just be honest with me. And he used some ripe swear word language to describe me. And he said, I've always valued your you know, because my job was to supervise writers and make suggestions that could help the show evolve. So I sat there and over lunch for an hour and a half, I told him what was wrong with, in my view, what was wrong with the first season of Star Trek. He says, thank you very much. I say, I hope I didn't offend you. He goes, not at all. So three days later, I get a phone call and I'm at CBS. It was an era where you had to wear a suit. So I'm in a suit and Maury says, can you get over to Paramount right now? Now, I had privileges at Paramount. I could drive onto the lot because I had shows there and also at Universal and Columbia. So I said, well, what, what's going on? He says, just get over here if you, I, I need you now. So I said, all right. I drove over. I told my people I was going to check up on one of my shows, which was a lot. I get to Paramount. I get to Maury's office. He says, come with me. And he drags me into Gene Roddenberry's office. So now it's me. See, I told you this is a complicated story. Um, and you stop me anytime you want. We can keep going while the show's going, but I don't want to monopolize. But it's a fun story for a Trekkie because I've told it to a few of my friends. So we get into the office and Gene is at, in his desk and I'm like, oh, my heart's palpitating. I'm a network executive. I'm probably 32 years old and I'm meeting my character writing God, small g. Oh my God. I'm like, Mr. Roddenberry, he holds his hands up. He says, Gene, I'm Gene. And I said, okay, I'm David. He says, all right, Maury tells me you've got some thoughts on season one. So I look at Maury and I'm like, <laughs> what did you do to me? Why are you doing this to me? And, and he, he just said, tell him. So I sat down and I did the same thing I did with Maury. I said, well, you know, the season was pretty cool. And Gene pulls his hand up and he goes, no bullshit. Maury told me you're a straight shooter. Tell me what's wrong with the show. Now, I later found out that the things I had said to Maury were what Gene and Maury had been talking about among themselves, how to make the show improve for season two. So here I am, a validating voice, and I'm thinking I got to sugarcoat it, and Gene's going, give me all the dirt because I want to I wanna know that I'm right. You know, Gene wants to know he's right. I'm validating. So I tell him, I say, the basic problems among, I can't remember, this was 87, 86? I can't, it's because I can't remember when this episode came out. Peak performance. Uh, 88. 88. So it would have been 87. And I said, the characters haven't bonded. They're not acting like a family. People tune into Star Trek to see a family. But a family isn't just kumbaya. It's fighting among each other. It's, it's, it's dirty pool. And Gene's like nodding his head. And I go, and another thing, and I started in, I had talked to Maury about Wesley, and I just 
felt Wes was like trapped in, you know, he was like a big lump of, of a rock inside really wonderful mashed potatoes. And it just, he clunked around, he banged off the walls and he wasn't, he wasn't integrated right. And Maury had said to me, that's Gene's avatar. That's Gene is present in the show through Wes. So you can't get rid of Wes. But I said, you know, he's got to become more vibrant. He's got to become more integrated. People got to like him more. And I said, but the main thing is, I realized um, I was telling Peter that when I saw this episode, I reminded myself of all the lines that I was writing. And I remember that I didn't know who I was as well as I do now. To, you know, I'm 66. I'll be 67 in two days. I'm an emotional person. I'm an emotional writer. And I brought all of my emotions with me whenever I did any writing. And so all my critiques of the TV shows, which were episodic and mostly at that era, guy-driven, there were guys writing the episodes. And I was the one that was always telling them, you need more emotion and you need more character that it's not like a character isn't a cane and a hat and a, and a mustache. A character is what is your emotional state? So Gene and I had this really big talk. And after two hours, he smiles at me and he goes, okay, I want to see you tomorrow. Can you come tomorrow? And I'm like, oh my God, I got a day job. You know, <laughs> he says, he goes, can you come to my house tomorrow? Instantly, I said, okay, I can get fired for this. I said, sure, I'm coming to your house tomorrow. So the next day I show up, I call in to CBS and I say, I'm going to work remotely, which was verboten in those days, but I had said I was offsite. I go to Gene's house, I knock on the door and who answers the door? Majul. Marshall Barrett, like, so I'm like, I've never in my life, and I I looked up, I just recently, Zillow, when I knew I was going to do this, Zillow, the house, and it's like $30 million today. So you can imagine what it was 30 years ago. And we go inside, she takes me back to the den. It's a sunroom that's as big as half a tennis court, and it's lined all in glass windows that are louvered open to the outside and it's a spring or summer day. So it's hot and the yard is, it's like this room is bigger than the apartment I was living in at 33 with my wife. We sit down. He says, I want to show you some clips of things that I hate from the first season. And I want to show you some clips that I like. And then we can talk about how to get more of what we like and what we don't like. So I'm with you. He pulls out, it's about 1130 in the morning, a bottle of bourbon. Mm. And he says, do you like bourbon? And I go, well, yeah. And I'm 32 and I'm not going to say no. <laughs> so the glass he gave me was like a vase. It was like my glasses at home are 10 and 12 ounces. This was like a 16 or an 18 ounce tumbler that my hand couldn't go around. He literally, there was only an inch or two left in the bottle. He had a brand new bottle and he poured literally 40% of it into his glass. And 40% into my glass. Oh, boy. <laughs> and he's sitting at the... This is one of my stories in my life. I have like four great, you know, like, oh, my God, adventure days. So we start drinking the bourbon. It's before noon. I haven't eaten anything. I worked out in the morning. And I was hammered by, you know, 30 minutes in. Oh. Gene finishes his tumbler. <laughs> so now I, I, I had heard that there were issues with alcohol and, and Gene. But he finished the tumbler. And he looks over at me and he goes, you're lagging. So I'm like, oh my God, I can't. Well, I said, Gene, I can't. He says, just keep up with me. <laughs> so 
I'm sitting, he's sitting in a big chair or recliner, and I'm in an L-shaped couch right in the middle. And right behind me is a big plant, and it's a succulent. And I'm checking it with my hands to see, is it real or is it fake? And it turns out it's real, but I make the decision it can handle it because it's got a lot of dirt and cork holding it together. So throughout the morning, I am now, when he looks the other way, pouring bits (laughs) of the drink into the plant and then pretending that I'm sipping it to try to keep myself alive. So when he sees I've finished the drink, he fills me up. He gets another bottle and fills me up. And I'm like, I'm dead. (laughs) The bottom line is this went on for two days. The second day was better. Because Majel figured it out and brought us sandwiches to keep me alive on the second day. But what happened in that first day, he says, let's look at the clips. I don't want to forget this part. And I'm looking around the room and I go, do do you have like, because remember, it's VCRs in that day. And I'm figuring like at my house, I have a little cart with a VCR and a TV on top. And I go, do do you have a VCR? How are we going to look at it? He goes, he holds up his hand. I know people can't see me, but you guys can. He holds up his hand pulls out a remote control and presses a button. And all of a sudden, the whole room, the blinds, blackout blinds come down on all three sides of this enormous sunroom. When that comes down, he presses another button and the ceiling opens up and one of those three gun projectors, the red, blue, green, like from the 70s and 80s, descends from the ceiling at the same time a full-length movie screen on the far end of the room comes down from the ceiling at the same time. Wow. And all of a sudden he presses play. So this is like, I'm in a rental apartment driving like a hand-me-down car with three tires that work. And I'm looking just at the equipment alone and going, oh my God, one day I just want, you know, to, this is so exciting. And that's how the day went. We watched clips and we talked about stuff. And he said to me, I said, we need more, it needs more humor. Now, remember, I'm not an employee. I'm just like this guy that's on the outside, but Maury liked me and he took a liking to me. And I was always made friends with my elders and and I was deferential, but I just gave him the truth as I saw it. And it was aided by the bourbon. So there was (laughs) not as much filtering. And he and I were in the room and a couple of times he was yelling at me. Um, I remember... And I remember knowing that it wasn't, he wasn't yelling at David Kemper. He was yelling at the writers that didn't do what he wanted. And it was just coming out, being expressed because there was alcohol involved. Remember, at 11 o'clock till two, two days in a row. So those were the two days I spent at Gene's house. So when that was over, because now I'm going into there, whenever I go to Paramount, I go into Star Trek. I go say hello. And... I get to meet some of the writers. So I became friends with Melinda Snodgrass. I became friends with Hans Beimler and Ricky Manning, um, who Ricky came on to Farscape with me and worked for the full season, you know, for the whole, all 92 episodes. But they, in the beginning, didn't like me too much because I was in a suit. I was like from the other side. I wasn't a writer or a real writer. I was writing scripts under a pseudonym because CBS didn't want me to quit. I wanted to be a writer. So they told me I could write. So I was writing for... Steve Cannell, I was writing Hunter and Hardcastle and McCormick and all these other shows under a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And Star Trek was the first time I was allowed to use my own name. Uh, so it's the first credit that has Kemper as my last name. The other ones were Lightstone, mm-hmm. um, which was my mother's maiden name. And while the season is going on, I'm popping in and I'm going on the set and I'm seeing stuff. 
And they came to me and they said, and Gene had been pressing, let him write one. And so I went in and pitched. And those were the days, I mean, today you can't even imagine, but you went in with 30 pitches and you threw out one-liners and then something triggered. And I pitched, they bought. I remember writing the script in the outline in two weeks, the script in two weeks. And when I got the final draft and then saw the picture, I couldn't believe that I wasn't like completely rewritten. It was like mostly my stuff. And I, I, I always wanted to think, well, that wasn't Gene or Maury. It probably was I knew enough about what I was trying to do that they recognized there was some value to what I had done. And that, of course, kept me in the loop. And even though I was still at CBS, I ended up doing another script for NextGen. And then a couple of years later, I, uh, quick story, Star Trek universe. I'll go on forever. I'm looking at Lisa right now. Um, I got to tell the audience, Lisa has a cat on her shoulder and it's been there the whole time. And as I'm trying to keep focus, the cat is waving its tail around her face like a mask and then flipping up and I'm laughing while I'm trying to tell these stories and remember. So I'm just giving everybody the behind the scenes so you know what's going on. Um, Michael Pillar, who I loved uh, dearly, and we stayed in touch right up until his passing. He was the CBS executive in my office, two executives before me. So he was there and left to, went out to go out and write on, I think, Simon and Simon. And then another guy came in. And when he left, I took over the office. Mm -hmm. So Michael Pill and I had this synergy. And he liked me and I liked him. And when Voyager was coming up, um, just to jump ahead, and this is the end of my introduction to the Star Trek universe, he said, we're going to use a female captain. And I said, oh, this is fantastic. And he knew I wrote women. In the old days, in the, in the 70s and 80s, when there were very few women on TV shows, sometimes they'd find a male writer who could had emotions and would write for the women. And the term that was assigned to me very early in my career, all male shop was the chick. So I was <laughs> assigned to write the girl parts because they didn't want to deal with it. And he knew I was comfortable writing for women. And so I ended up doing the third script of Voyager, which was a year process because they kept firing, hiring, changing actors, which caused me to keep rewriting the script. And if the Writers Guild is listening, I apologize, but I told them I wouldn't tell the Writers Guild that I was <laughs> being made to write the script 75 times to get it until the final thing was settled because I really enjoyed the process and I wanted to help the people. And uh, so that's my introduction to Star Trek universe. Also, um, just as a fan, I, there's not been an episode of anything or a movie that I didn't see the minute it came out. So yeah, that's fantastic. You got a real one, an old one here, an, old, <laughs> an old OG Star Trek guy. <laughs> well, let's uh, get right on into talking about this episode. Uh, season two, episode 21, Peak performance uh if listeners out there would like to watch along it's available right now on paramount plus or on the amazing blu-ray sets which you can pick up anytime you like uh but first let's go down the syndication sizzle reel for the episode we have one war game one derelict 80 year old ship which somehow has more modern looking workings than the 70 year old ship of the original series three games of strategema which is a game of strategy 
which rules seem to be encompassed by twiddling your fingers. One depressed android, one Ferengi ship, which seems perplexed that anyone would want to practice. Two ghost ships, which served to impart the classic joke of, hey, mate, you look. Trexpert's briefing room, Vulcan salutes have to go to Diana Muldar for completing Dr. Pulaski's arc of going from being an antagonistic force towards Data to becoming, throughout the season, a more protective older sister character by the end. And for my money, she is missed in future seasons. Patrick Stewart for giving one of the top 10 Picard lines of the series. It is possible to make no mistake and still lose. Roy Brocksmith for the role of Cole Rami, the guy whose even makeup prosthetics were designed to make you go, God, I hate that guy. Warp seven in three, two, one, engage. That's what was the genesis of uh, this story? Did you pitch it or did you write I, it on spec? I pitched this. Um, in a war game exercise. I'm trying to recreate, let's say this is 35 years ago and it's come back, it comes back slowly. I pitched, what if there was a war game and Riker had to captain another ship against Picard? So now you would think that's a battle, but it's really, I wanted to bring out the love, the father-son love. And it was to set up the, the dynamic of the two characters and then have the ship rally around well, they would have to make choices because they'd be separated into two ships. But then the second part of the pitch was, as soon as the ships get disarmed, because they're not going to shoot at each other with real weapons, it'll be computer simulation. As soon as they're disarmed, a bad guy ship shows up, and now there's real danger, and both ships could be destroyed. And so going from being antagonists against each other, they now go back to being this family with a greater evil coming in. And mm -hmm. so it was my way of manipulating the audience to ride that emotional roller coaster and end up at the end uh, solidifying was I was hoping was what Gene and I had talked about at the start of the season was to bring them all together as a family. That was the impulse. That's great. Planet is the 80 year old star cruiser Hathaway. He is still your first choice. Commander Riker will captain the Hathaway. You will have 48 hours to ready your vessel before the Enterprise attacks. And we'll experience actual battle. What I'm looking at, I'm looking at Kolrami. Uh, what you said made me laugh when you talk about even the makeup was designed to make him just, you know, someone you loathe. Mm -hmm. I the computer. took every person that was disparaging to me throughout my life and rolled <laughs> them into this guy. And he's so supercilious and he's so up as, can we, can we say a couple of bad words here? Not, yeah. not real bad. <laughs> <laughs> he's so up his own ass. Um, he just thinks that he's better than everyone. And that was what led me to come up with Stratagemma, which was a way to bring him down a peg. He was going to learn respect for the crew through the, the A story. And then the B story, which was Data's crisis of confidence, I thought would be really fun to have an android have a crisis of confidence. It's been done before, but I wanted to do it in a unique way. And then um, have Kolrami learn a real lesson at the hands of Data, who wasn't even knowing that he was teaching Kolrami a lesson. That was, of course, the doctor's uh, instigation. 
Yeah. Roy Brocksmith plays the role of Korami, um, kind of a fixture on uh, 80s sci-fi TV and film, um, probably best known for his role in Total Recall, um, but also appeared in Tango and Cash, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, um, and uh, died at a rather young age in 2001 at the age of uh, 56, but um, definitely made his mark, very memorable in just about everything he does. So did you have much of an opportunity to go down to the set and to meet at the cast? Oh, yeah. I, it's just like, as I said, I hate to... These are the it sounds awful, but it is. I was an executive at a rival network. So Paramount was a brand new, you know, platform for shows. And no one at Paramount knew that a CBS executive was there. All the people on the show knew I was a CBS executive. And so I was on the lot. I could just drive on. I had a drive on. And I would just pop in to say hello. And I went on uh, the set a couple of times uh, when they were shooting my episode. I think, well, let, let me take a look here because there's a scene I want to comment on. For everyone who's watching at home, we're still at the, the credits. In the first scene coming up, I believe there's a walk and talk down the hallway, down the corridor of the ship. And there are paintings on the wall. And have you guys on the show discussed the paintings that are on the ship and in Picard's cabin? No, we haven't. Okay. Well, then let's let's wait for that to come up, and I'll just say this as the credits roll. The director... Um, see, I was telling Peter when we talked a couple of days ago, I realize I'm like Zelig. I'm from an older generation, so I been and done things that other people haven't done and I didn't recognize the value of them but as I'm older I can look back and go all roads come back to each other so the director of this episode was the excellent Robert Shearer so here comes we're into the show peak performance on my ship leader of an away team has total control of the mission it'll be when they leave they're on the bridge now when they leave the bridge I'll ask the people that are watching to take a look at the wall so you'll see the painting when we go by. I'll, I'll, I'll alert you. Oh, I think this was the first time Armin Shimmerman was cast in the franchise. Okay. Um, second time. He second did appear time. in, uh, he was kind of the go-to Ferengi guy, I think. Uh, <laughs> but, in season but, uh, one, he appeared as a Ferengi. Oh, he was in season one? Yeah. Oh, I thought um, it was okay. I thought Brockter was his first, and then they uh, then he ended up as Cork later. He did, you know? yeah. He did end up as Cork okay. later. But, uh, but yeah. Um, uh, okay. I, I say I'm mistaken, but, and I don't know okay. as much as you, so that's okay. Um, uh, so Robert Shearer, who was phenomenal human being, um, he and I had crossed paths. I got to Hollywood in, there's Maury Hurley's credit. There's so many of these people that I'm talking about have left us now. And I'm, it just made me feel, made me feel sad for the old day. But, um, oh, there's your name. There's your you name. are. Full last name. Full last name. Um, so Robert Shearer in 1977, I wanted to work in Hollywood and I, back then the Hollywood reporter at the back of the Hollywood reporter, they had literally one ads for people to be gophers or to do. So here, look, there's, you can see the painting on the wall mm -hmm. in the back. There's a painting there and there'll be a paint. There's another painting to the side. 
all the paintings that were in Next Gen were um, by an artist named Dave Archer, A-R-C-H-E-R. And he pioneered, was this, he took the idea from another guy. They used a Tesla coil, a million volts of electricity. He would put the glass, the painting was a piece of glass on the floor. He would take paint and then electrify it with a million. If you look in the back, you can see the pictures here. These are all his space paintings. And they were all made with this Tesla coil at a studio. He was featured in National Geographic and on CBS. And these, join me. These, um, the honor is to these paintings. I came across about eight years earlier in 1978. So here's the a line when I saw this, and he Warf says the word. They say, "What are you gonna? What what can we do?" and he says, guile. And I wrote that. And when I saw it, I knew they were going to leave everything kind of intact. Because it, to me, that was very proud of that. So here we go down the hallway. And okay, well, we're back on the bridge. So the painting, I was at a gallery in San Francisco. And this was the featured painting that drew people in. And it was space. And the more I learned, I put in a bid on the, the one painting that was the featured painting. This guy came out with a show and someone else bought it for much more money. And I got a call a day later that the check didn't clear. Hmm. So I was the second bid and I ended up with the painting. I became friends with Dave. And for my 40th birthday, I commissioned a painting that's in my house. So I have two by him. And somewhere along the way, I know that uh, Maury Hurley was at my house. And I know that some of the Star Trek guys were at my house. And they saw the paintings. I have no idea if it's connected, but his stuff ended up in every set all over uh, the ship. And Picard's cabin has two of the most remarkable ones that I've ever seen. And it was just kind of like a tangential um, uh, coming together where I had that painting. And when I saw it on the show, I said, how did that happen? It's it just, I guess my tastes were synergistic with the producers. Coming back to Bob Shearer, if I may, I answered an ad to be a gopher, a driver for a TV show called Hollywood Diamond Jubilee, which was celebrating the 30th, uh, the 50th year of Hollywood, the Hollywood sign. And they tore the sign down in the 80s. Now we're playing Stratagema here for the mm-hmm. first time. We, they tore the Hollywood sign down. And for two years, it was being rebuilt. And this show took two years to put together. So I began as Bob Shearer's gopher. I would go get donuts and I would go get stuff. And by the time the show was over, I was one of the associate producers and I was working with the, the stars, Raquel Welch. And um, I got to work with Betty Davis and Roy Rogers. And it was I was still only 22 years old. I have a picture behind me on the wall of myself and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and one with Raquel Welch. I'm 22 years old with the old Tom Selleck mustache. And (laughs) Bob Shearer and I became very close friends. So I get a phone call from him one night and he's cackling. And he says, because we didn't, we weren't in touch for like a year and a half. He goes, you son of a gun. Did you write a Star Trek episode? And I said, (laughs) yeah, how do you know? And he goes, I'm directing it. 
And we went out to dinner the next night to celebrate and that we had been like reunited in the business over this particular episode. And so I was on the set to answer your question long windedly. I was on the set quite often because, you know, he and I were buddies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember them shooting this scene. This is the uh, Riker is playing Kolrami and going to lose ingloriously. And then, uh, <laughs> so you said. Th- okay, so yes, there were three because data comes back okay, one more yeah. time. You're right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I should listen to you. I defer. I have to ask though, because like I remember as a kid watching this and being like, this reminds me a lot of the the video game sequence in the James Bond movie, Never Say Never Again. Was that was that at all an influence on the creation of the game, or was it? I will be. Just- I will tell you completely honestly. None of what you see was me. Ah. What ah. was me was I said, "Can we make a three dimensional chess game?" Like it's three dimensional chess, but, uh, but rapid fire. And that was my description in the script. And so what they did in special effects, I had no part of the production. I was simply the the kid fly on the wall, like really excited to be on the the bridge and have pictures taken with the cast and all that. I was like total fanboy. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, no, the, the application of what ended up, it was just, I said, let's think of three dimensional chess and your fingers are moving the pieces. So you have 10 pieces in motion at once. So each side has 10 pieces and it's this ballet. I wrote something like, it's a ballet of movement in a three-dimensional zone between them. And then that's what they came up with. Agreed, need you by my side. Science, Worf, engineering is anything like I also knew when I saw, we're in, we're in the Hathaway right now, which is the, uh, is it a constellation? Class it is ship. a constellation class. Yeah, this is the original Star Trek ship. Yeah. So at some point, I think it's Jordy, I can't remember the scene, who says, How are we gonna where are we gonna get fiber optic cable? And I remember sitting in the loft of my little one-room apartment in Santa Monica um, with a bourbon at two in the morning, and I wrote the line anywhere. And um, it was for Wharf, because I gave him one line you know, one word lines. And I wrote the line, Jordy says, where are you going to get the fiber optic cable? And he says, anywhere. And he just reaches up out of frame and pulls cable out of the ceiling. So you don't actually see what a mess the ceiling is, but Mm -hmm. the inference is anywhere that you look up, it's a disaster. So (laughs) I wrote that in that way and explained it that way to kind of say, don't, we don't want to see the ceiling, but anywhere he grabs, he's going to come down with something that's usable. And they actually did it and they did it that way. And so I was, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, I did not get completely rewritten. <laughs> <laughs> kind of amazing to watch something happen like exactly the way you wrote it and to see it actually come to life. Well, especially as I know, you know, when you're young, you know, mm-hmm. when it's not your experience, like when you're older and you're, you're in charge of a show, you can actually kind of make that happen if you want to. But when you're young, you're at the mercy of everyone else. And it's a really gratifying feeling that, oh, my God, they must have liked it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's you live as a writer. You're always living on the edge of, is this is this my last moment in the business? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Well, this yeah. was also, this was Star Trek. So to me, oh, yeah. this was. Remember, our purpose is to improvise. I can't even, just even the fact that you guys have asked me to come and do this commentary is just so gratifying. It just makes me feel so warm. 
Well, we're going to ask you back. So uh, this was me <laughs> trying. We're, we're in the uh, antimatter, and Wes is saying um, they're talking about we have no warp drive. We can't do anything. And Wes, I created for him an experiment that was back on the ship that would have had a particle of antimatter that they could use to do a quick warp jump, which will happen later. And so we're salting in the end of the show early, mm -hmm. but it was my way of, okay, Wes is not obnoxious. He's actually going to be helpful and he's going to go back and he shouldn't have gone back. It was against the rules, but it's all orchestrated in a way that uh, that works out and lets Cole Rami. I express no such interest. Uh, what Commander Data means is that he would never... Uh, the Bridge of the Hathaway is actually a subtle redress of the Battle Bridge from the Enterprise D, um, which I suppose accounts for the fact that it has uh, quite a lot more technology than you'd expect to see in an 80-year-old ship. But, I was going to uh, say. It's a solid, you know, it's, it's a solid redress, and you, you, you can totally believe that it's, it's its own thing, and so that's quite nice, but... Um, you have all that information that I don't have, that... <laughs> That backstory. Um, then you will play for the honor of this to me. So now you've got the doctor stepping in and kind of orchestrating this match between Data and Kalrami. And Kalrami is uh, Data is such an innocent soul. Yes. Mm -hmm. She's being manipulative, but to an end. Um, and what comes out at the end of the episode is her feeling of caring for him. Yeah. And right. In the, the word that was always, I used to write, I think I have some of the file cards here. I would, for uh, every script I ever wrote, including, you know, I don't know, I wrote 40 or 30 for Farscape, I would take one word, put it on a file card, and put the file card right on top of my keyboard under the... Uh, the screen to always remind me that that was the theme of the show. And I tried to make it one word. Sometimes I think I, I had two words, but this one was love. And because yeah. I thought it was, I wasn't going to overtly put love into the show, but I wanted the characters to express that, what you could call love for each other. And uh, I remember that as being a conscious motivator. And it, it wasn't like I saturated it with it. But enough of it comes out, and when you get to that last scene, and there's the warmth that that surrounds Data in his uh, victory, or his stalemate victory. If it works, they will be surprised. It's one of the few times you see the other side of uh, <laughs> engine warp core here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, theoretically, you are actually inside of it right now. But, right. Uh, <laughs> and but there's nothing. There's nothing happening because the ship's dead and cold. Of course. Of course. But. Uh, you know, it works. It works. We're with it. I, um... Well, it has to be monitored. And it is my final grade. I don't know where the idea for the Hathaway came. Meaning, I wanted a war game. And I can't remember. I think I had my original notes. And I still have them. And I searched. And I told Peter I was very disappointed. Um, I've been battling some health issues. And I'm not allowed to go to my storage locker because of the dust. Mm -hmm. and it's in the storage locker. I know where it is. I could find it. So someday I will. I'll pull it out. But I'm trying to remember back. The Hathaway, my pitch was the ship that he gets is, it's almost like it's a joke. It's just, 
he's designed the the whole exercise is designed for Riker to lose, mm-hmm. and it's a matter of to just see how it was a psychological underpinning what I was going for, but it was too complicated in a short amount of time to get what I wanted. But you give somebody a losing position, how do they handle it? Yep. Do they just, do they acknowledge, okay, I'm going to lose. I'm not going to put into any effort or do you, do you go above and beyond? And that's what Starfleet is looking for that. It doesn't even matter if you know you're going to die, you do it the best you can do it. And yep. so that saying that I wanted the ship to be so dysfunctional that it was guaranteed there was no way they could win. And so I'm not sure if that came off of, they came up with the Hathaway or if I came up with the Hathaway in terms of literally, I know the name was mine, but I can't recall because I can't recall the sessions. Um, A lot of the writing sessions were more private, like me with Maury or me with Gene for a couple of minutes, and then I would go and write. And But everything I brought in, they just said, bring something in, and they were in a hurry, too, because mm. it was the end of the year. And as you were saying, the writer's strike, I remember being out on strike um, when right when this happened. It's game number two of Strata Game. And she says, um, bust him up. What does yeah. she mean by bust him up? <laughs> and I um, remember sitting at the computer writing bust him up as a euphemism for F him up, you know, right. which today, you know, in a feature film, that would be the line. And so I thought, what would be a line that Data would understand and that the audience would understand as a euphemism for a swear word, bust him up, mm-hmm. which of course comes back at the end of the episode. Thank you. So here's the stratagema, and you can see um, it's triangles and circles and squares on a three-dimensional plane, and... Obviously, I am not. Android has been beaten. Um, (laughs) Nice smile. It it was a hiss, too. (laughs) There was a hiss to it. He has temporarily removed himself from bridge duty, sir. Crew is excellently trained, Captain. So did you see a thematic link between the A story and the B story? Oh, for sure. It's absolutely. It's, it's, um, why is that? You look at, uh, well, let's look at the Hathaway crew. I'm just trying to, I've, I just seen this once in 35 years last week, but you've got Riker, you've got Jordy, you've got Worf, and they're all, and, and even Wesley, even Wesley vocalized, we're going to lose. And mm-hmm. Riker said, you can, Go home if you want. So they're all over on the other side going, we're doomed. We, we're, we're, they're having a crisis of confidence. Well, Data's having exactly the same thing in the B story. Mm-hmm. That was the synergy to me. It was to, to mirror so that everybody's having this crisis and then somehow they all pull together and you have this unified family that nobody broke. You know, everyone had their moment of weakness, but they didn't break. You had... Riker bucking up the people on one side. You had Wesley coming up with an idea that he didn't tell Jordy about and goes and affects it and it saves the ship. Everybody's one little piece saved the day, but there was no concerted effort. Each person on their own was kind of solo trying to do the best they could. Mm-hmm. And it and it all feathered together in the end to work out. And then you have you have Troy and you have the doctor and you have 
um, Picard all going to Data and trying to buck him up. And so it's it's I, I saw definitely uh, that was one of the things that I think people liked and resonated is that it was integrated that the, the thing didn't feel like there were pieces stuck onto it. It all came from one place and um, happened really quickly. Is well founded. It's also touching on a, a certain overarching storyline from Star Trek, which is that like Starfleet doesn't quite know what to do with Commander Riker. They keep <laughs> offering him captain roles. He keeps turning them down, and they they don't understand why that. Is. And this is also saying like here's Korami who's talking about how he's looked over Riker's uh, records and and psych profiles and things, and, and it's just like I don't. He's just unstable. I don't like him. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because what I'm going to suggest is, and now I see it. You're such a good mind for this. I see what you're saying. But I'm going to guess this might have been at the front of that storyline. Yes, yes, no, it's in true. that in that you know, then they must have picked up on it. But to me, I don't know the people who are streaming this. I'm going to assume nobody is seeing it for the first time. Yeah, <laughs> Probably so not. Ruin, so I don't ruin the ending. Yeah. <laughs> the point is at the ending. I do not have a data. The the camaraderie. When I saw it, it kind of gave me chills when I was watching it again the other night in, in, on TV. And the line that you talked about, it's, impossi it's possible to do nothing wrong and still lose. That's life. I remember writing that line and... I believe so. I have proven to be vulnerable. I can't even fathom that at you know 30, I would have that sense of, of that understanding, but I guess it was it was in me. The line I'm most proud of is, I don't know how to, how to say this. I didn't, I wasn't a producer on the show, so I didn't have access to the actors and no one asked me. And, and I wouldn't have presumed to tell an actor how to do a reading or anything like that. I didn't, wouldn't do that even when I'm producing shows and a showrunner. That it? The actors all, because my emotion was on the page, the actors figured it out and delivered. And the line that made me the most proud, I know that one quote that everyone cites and then the bust me up at the end, but it's when Picard, uh, when Kolrami, when Picard does something that saves the day and Kolrami says he's pretty good and uh, Picard stands up and puffs his chest out and goes, he's the best. <laughs> it was it was that sense of fatherly pride that Picard brought to that one reading of the line mm. that I just was like, oh wow, that's how that's why this episode worked is that they all the actors figured out how to play. They knew their parts and they knew who they were at the end of season two much better than they did at the end of season one. And so yeah. this script at the end of season one would have been a little clunky and some of the emotional scenes might have fallen flat because yeah. they wouldn't have known how to interact with each other. But on their own, they developed their own sense of camaraderie of going through the shooting cycle for a year, two years. It's brutal, right? Yeah. And they're all together on the set. And when this script arrived, they all knew exactly what they were supposed to do with it. And so it, that, that, made me, that made me smile. Did you find that you sort of heard the actors' voices in your head as you were writing their dialogue? 
Okay, so let me flip this back at you because you're a writer of renown. I wish I had never maneuvered you. Do you ever not hear their their voices? No, I I absolutely do. I mean, I find that that really informs my writing. That's what I'm asking. Is so I'm not alone in giving this answer. (laughs) I have been. I'm. We were talking off uh, before this started about you know I'm working on a book that has to do with um, human personality, and I believe that the most important trait for human beings the uh can can we be topical in this commentary sure well today is today is the the morning that the the russians have invaded ukraine and we were talking beforehand how devastating it is for the people of ukraine and i in my research have been understanding what can make a person like putin not care that children are being killed and people are suffering and it's empathy. And so the centerpiece of my book is empathy. And people who have empathy, of which I suspect and know you do, Lisa, and, and Peter also, you, you can feel what another person is feeling. Mm-hmm. So as a writer, I always knew that I was known. That's why they gave me the title, The Chick, on the, <laughs> on the, the Steve Cannell shows. They were all the, the butch guy shows, you know what I mean? Like Hunter and all that. And so I, whenever I was writing shows, I would write specifically for an actor. So when I'm show running a couple of different shows that I worked on, I knew the actors really well. I would talk to them and get a sense of their cadence and what they liked. And I would write directly for their cadence and for their voice. And Picard had been around for a while and Worf was easy and data, the rhythm of data was easy. Um, and Jordy, you know, I just was always trying to tailor what I was doing for them, hoping that they would pick up on it. And like I said, um, uh, Patrick Stewart is such an accomplished actor mm-hmm. um, that there's not much you can give him. But I, I was working, I wrote for The Equalizer with Edward Woodward, another classically trained English actor. And anything you put in front of him was interpreted like emotionally, and fully to the end, and you were, and people would come to you afterwards and say, like I think with with in the Picard, if someone said, "Oh my God, that was so much emotion you put into the line," no, he's the best. No, I didn't have that emotion. The emotion it was just the line. He's the best. He made it emotional. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so I can't take credit for the emotion. I can take credit for putting the words there. And but uh, this is Data's crisis of confidence. Yeah, and I really have to. I really have to compliment the script in here too, uh, because it's it's like we are saying it's a crisis of confidence, but technically Data is not having a crisis of confidence. What he's having is doubt about his own abilities, well, and that's he's, a different he's trying thing. to diagnose himself exactly. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. like that is very much what you would expect an android to do at that moment. But humans are interpreting it as being like, right, this okay. is what we would call a crisis of confidence. And I you like know, the distinction between the two, which is great. Which is great. If God ever gives me another show, which I don't think he will, I will bring you on that show because you oh, seem to you. <laughs> be you seem to get into the depth of stuff. That's the kind of stuff I like in the writing room when mm-hmm. people have that discussion and they're talking about you're you're making this leap. Let's just go on this for a second for me. Because I'm learning. This is so much fun. Um, your only 21% of the time does he rely on traditional tactics. I'm saying it's a crisis of confidence. 
And you're literally going inside data and going, no, it's not. But the humans interpret it that way. And you're right, you caught me interpreting data as giving, because he's trying so hard, like Geppetto's little puppet, he's trying so hard to be real. Yeah. But so you're right, he's not having a crisis of confidence. He's looking at himself and going, what's broken? Yes. You know, and how can I fix it? But the crisis of confidence, the humans are reacting to it and bucking him up as though he were a human having a crisis of confidence. And the fact that you could interpret that, I would hire you without, you wouldn't even need an agent, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. you hear that, Hollywood? You hear that? <laughs> yes. And call me if you need a reference. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. <laughs> so this one, but knowing that he knows that we know that he knows that he knows. <laughs> yes. That was, that's the double. And then she's like, no, 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 no. Stop overanalyzing it. So funny. It's really interesting to see Deanna and Data interacting because they, they don't an awful lot. I mean, again, she's all about emotions and he's emotionless. And so having seen with them together is, is really nice. I, I'm I, just like, I hate to toot horns, you know, but I wanted, that's, I wanted the women to interact with Data. The men were going to be more like Jordy was going to go, come on, Data, get it up. You know, let's go, figure it out. And Worf would just be, Hurumph. and it's it's the women who were going to be nurturing. And I'm a nurturing human being. And so when I'm trying to think of who could I have nurture data and see if I could guide him to come out of the computer funkies in, mm-hmm. it just was instinctual to me to put the words in the mouths of, of, a, of a woman because it's, uh, so I'm just... You know, Counter with the we should have all written together. We could have. <laughs> <laughs> Do you love that? I find that line so funny, too. Just remember, Captain Riker has never lost. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because he's never been a captain. So exactly. Never. <laughs> and this is, well, that was the, that was the, um, minimal aspect. I did this in, in uh, a lot of different episodes, a lot of different shows, is you give someone a title that they don't have and you try it out on them to see what's going to happen. Full weapon systems disengage, modify. Now, I'm, there's a, a line up here that's coming. I'm trying to remember. I made a couple of notes. Once the Ferengi arrive, should we go to that now? And, and, and so people oh, sure. can... If I, if I talk about a line that, that Kolrami says, it's upcoming... Is it better for the audience, the the, view, the listeners, to know about it so they can dissect it as it goes, or should we talk about it after it happens? Well, it's coming up here in a second. We can okay. uh, wait a moment. I'll just I'll quickly mention that um, Glenn Mor- Morshower, I'm sorry if I'm butchering that name, uh, plays uh, Instant Burke here, who's the replacement uh, replacement to Mr. Worf up there at the top. Um, easily one of the hardest working people in Hollywood. He, it's not a yeah. year that's gone by that he hasn't appeared in like five different projects. Um, you'll see him a lot as uh, these days as a, as a prosecutor or as a lawyer or as some government official or some high up detective. He looks good in a suit. Um, but here he plays. Uh, How do you know all this stuff? Um, I'm so the power, The power of the internet. But thank you. I'm old enough that I can't use it right <laughs> <laughs> So um, here we, we're in a crisis because, um, and, and Hathaway, bye-bye. You went off credit. So, so cruel, so cruel. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he actually appeared in five other Star Trek projects, all his different roles. Um, 
famous, probably the most prominent being in Star Trek Generations. He played one of the uh, Enterprise B crew members. Hmm. Um, he was also actually in uh, my Voyager episode, uh, hey. the first one I wrote, Resistance. There you go. What season was that? Um, two, I believe. Yeah, season two. So you came on after, because I, I, um... The Ferengi have broken off their attack. Drop shields, transport the away team. So they're being attacked by the Ferengi. And this is a holy what the huh moment because they don't have any weapons. And Picard's saying, get me the weapons. And said, no, we can't, we have nothing. So now we have two ships crippled and it's bluff time. Right. Um, Lisa, we could have written together. They wanted me to come on to the show. Mm -hmm. And my uh, best friend in the business who has taken me wherever he's gone is Rockney S. O'Bannon, who's created okay. some fantastic shows like Farscape and um, Cult and uh, uh, Alien Nation. But he created Sequest. Mm -hmm. And that was done at NBC with Steven Spielberg. And they had Roy Scheider. And he asked me to go on the show. And so I did not. That was the second year of Voyager when I started working on Sequest. Mm -hmm. And so we could have been uh, stable mates. Yeah. We could have written together. It's true. Yeah, we missed. It's all those roads not taken that I look back now and go. We have refrained from launching a counter. -attack. It's definitely, I mean, it's hard to know too, obviously with any step of your career. We had Denise Crosby on a few, uh, few months back who uh, obviously was Tasha Yar in season one and, and uh -huh. made the decision to leave the show because she was just feeling very unfulfilled as an actor and, and you look at her roles in season one, you're like, yeah, you know, that's fair. You're not, you're not, they're not giving you much to do. And then, but then you think on the other side, it's like if she'd stuck around. Season well, that's three, part of what, that's part of what we were yeah. talking about in between the seasons, you know, yeah. is that people, the actors weren't being serviced. Is, yeah. I'm an actor's, uh, I love it, the actors more than anyone, you know, it's like they're just so put themselves out there and make it real. Have we get we haven't gotten to the line a surge of power we're being okay creech so i'm sitting around trying to come up with a, a ferengi ship name mm -hmm. and i want it to be hard and I, I i had a piece of paper i remember i wrote the alphabet out a to z and i circled a few letters the k the r you know the ch the t so i wanted something screechy like i was thinking mm -hmm. in my head screech I wanted to, to call it a screech ship. And um, then I was looking, I had done a pilot just that year about Native Americans on a, a Native American chief on the reservation in New Mexico. And they had, I had a bunch of Indian names for things. And I took two Indian names and put them together into Creechta mm -hmm. and it turned it into the name of the ship. So I think this is where Roy Brocksmith has monitoring communications. Yes, sir. Colrami's right. You've got to save the enterprise. That would leave you defenseless. So I have some other trivia for the. Uh, we'll we'll wait because right here. What? I've got two little things that I'm gonna impart. Impossible. That ship was rendered warp in. So Colrami is saying the Hathaway is expendable. That was, and I remember. Right now, I have to work something out with Mr. Data. Promise. 
The Ferengi wish to capture the Hathaway, believing it's... So he says, the Hathaway is expendable. From their field of interest. And they will and located after a two-second walk. I believe there's another line coming up where he says the words acceptable losses. Mr. Decker. On the captain's command, we will fire four... We might have already passed it. I don't think so. I think I hate this plan. Data, we're not even sure. Okay, well, the words acceptable losses. If the warp engines fail to function. I remember reading that when I was a teenager. And it means in military parlance, you know, this we're, this is okay. You know, what happened is okay. We lost a bunch of guys, but it's acceptable losses because we won. And I was always, I was, uh, I had a draft number from Vietnam twice. Mm. And... Um, I did not want to go to war. I was not a killer. I was a lover. And luckily, I did not have to. I didn't get called. Don't know what I would have done. But acceptable losses always caused me to become angry. And it's, it's like basically saying those people didn't matter. We got a greater good. That's a cold person as opposed to saying, my God, you know, these are family members that were killed. And it's, we're talking about Ukraine today. It's the same thing. And acceptable losses, um, I recognized when I saw, because I, I heard it in the show earlier, The um, I wrote a whole script called Acceptable Losses for a tour of duty. Hmm. Once I went out four years later and became a writer, um, I was on tour of duty as a story editor. And I did a whole episode called Acceptable Losses, which is the folly of the, there's a victory, but someone beautiful and wonderful died achieving that victory. And it's not worth it to the, to the people who were there. So I just recognized in myself themes of my own career by going back and seeing this show 35 years ago. Rather than suffer the ignominy of defeat and capture. Have, have you guys... Are you aware of uh, Stacey Abrams' connection to this particular episode? Not this particular one. I know she was a Star Trek fan. Okay. So her latest book, well, the book that was before, she just did one, but she did a book in 19. I forget the name of it. So here's they pulled this scam out of Frankie. I got a call from a really good friend of mine who's a Trekkie fan. Uh, he's a couple years older than me, and he's an OG Trekkie too. And uh, when I would go down to do Comic-Con, he would always come and bring his kids. And we're, we're very close. We're family. And his name is Jim Loth. And he calls me one day in 19, 2019. He says, have you read Stacey Abrams' new book? And I said, no. And he goes, go to page, and I can't remember what the page is, but there are three pages dedicated to her talking about peak performance. And she says that when she was a young teenage girl, she watched, she was a Trekkie. She watched this particular episode. It's the only one she talks about for three pages. Yeah. She says she watched Data learn to, to change his goal, to not try to win, but try to achieve a stalemate. And she said, I adopted that in the Georgia legislature because I knew I couldn't win. So I was going to maneuver a different way. And she said, that's become the guiding principle of who I am as a politician. Oh, wow. Wow. And she credits 
peak performance and Data's playing Stratagema and his lines that, you know, as formative to her being a 13-year-old girl and then learning how to survive through the world and the fact that 30 years, 35 years later, she would write a book and cite it means mm -hmm. it actually had an impact on her. And when I That's read amazing. That, I went and got the book and I read it in context. And I, it just made me feel so gratified that, you know, you, you want to know that your work is going to impact people, but to think that it had that kind of an impact on a person for their whole life. So now here we're at the final scene. And Data's going to give the last line of the episode. You have made a mockery of me. Oh, look at that look on his face. <laughs> you beat him. No, sir. That's a look of pleasure for an android. Uh, you yes, know, it is. He knows he's in control. <laughs> he, that, he, he's playing it. He knows, I've got you. Look at that. He's smiling. See the uh -huh. smile? So don't tell me he's not, you've got human. He's got some human in him. <laughs> he's like, why did you stop? <laughs> it's not a rematch. You made a mockery out of me. No. <laughs> and then he, he leaves and everybody's like, and settle for a balance. And Data goes right back to being, no, no, I didn't beat him. It was no big deal. <laughs> I altered my premise for playing the game. In the strictest sense. Working under the assumption that Karami was attempting to win, it is reasonable to assume that he expected me to play for the same goal. No, I was playing for a standoff, a draw. While Karami was dedicated to winning, I was able to pass up obvious avenues of advancement and settle for a balance. Theoretically, I should be able to challenge him indefinitely. Stacey Adams quoted that whole line in her book as part of the three pages she dedicated to this episode. So when this came up, I thought I should bring that up just for the, and this, I busted him up at the end. Yeah. I was, I wrote that as the last line and thought, there's no way they're going to end on that. They're going to have to go back to Picard or something or Riker. And they left it. Yeah. So, yeah. I thought for the people who are real Trekkies, um, well, my Hans and Ricky, hi guys. My uh, my experience in life is that this franchise, and I was lucky enough. Did you get to meet Gene, Lisa? I'm sorry. Did you get to meet Gene? No, I didn't. Unfortunately, to to meet him, he was one of my idols. When I was a kid, I was like, "Oh my God!" You know, he's the big bird. He's the guy, and his influence live long and prosper. I mean, it just, it's cultural. It goes beyond Star Trek. It's everywhere. It's infused in society. Now there are catchphrases and that you just know of, and they came from his mind and his goal to present an alternative to, um, where every, the harm, the harmony of life where everyone could live together. Mm -hmm. uh, do you guys, I don't know how long we've been going. Um, do you have another minute for me? I told yes. Peter. Go ahead, go I told ahead. Peter I would just go. You know, I could <laughs> go forever. So old Hollywood. I was fortunate enough to get my job at CBS in '79, and I worked there till '91. I worked with some of the people that created that were in Hollywood TV. So Sam Rolfe, who did some Star Trek episodes, created Have Gun Will Travel and The Man from Uncle. Mm -hmm. He became one of my mentors as a writer. Wow. He had a partner 
named Chris Knopf, who was president of the Writers Guild and had done features and plays. And their third amigo was Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. They had all served, they were all born in their early 20s, early to mid 20s, and they all served as young men in World War II. They didn't know each other in the war, but when they came out of the war, there was this generation of guys that had fought the big war. They became best friends. Gene rode a motorcycle. So Sam and, and Chris both got motorcycles. And I happened to work with all three. And so I knew them and I knew of their, their team, their camaraderie. And they would send each other each other's scripts. So Gene, uh, uh, Sam would send Gene and Chris, the man from UNCLE. Mm-hmm. And they would, like, they would each redline the script and send it back. They didn't bother to give notes. They wrote all their notes in the margin. And they, mm-hmm. they showed me some of these scripts. And it would be like things like, you're such a jerk. You can't <laughs> imagine that. You know, they would just bust each other's you know, you know what they would bust each other and that's, they'd bust them up. And so I remember asking Sam Rolf at his house one day, I said, and I was fortunate to be, I'm still an executive trying to be a writer. I'm writing scripts as a pseudonym and I'm picking the brains of these top writers who have created the best team. I grew up on the man from uncle. I grew up on Star Trek. I grew up on have done with travel. And I remember asking him, did Gene ever send you Star Trek? And Sam goes, oh, he rolls his eyes. He goes, yes, he sent me Star Trek. I thought it was junk. <laughs> and, then, and then he pauses and he goes, F. He says, F, what did I know? <laughs> that's just kind of like how I was tied into the, you asked how I was roped in. There are about seven different ways that I've been tied in and you haven't heard four of them. <laughs> but it's because it's all of Hollywood worked, uh, it was tighter, it was smaller. There were only three networks in the beginning. And, and everybody, like Bob Shearer, was a dancer who worked with Bob Fosse um, and had worked on Broadway as a dancer. And so he knew those guys and they knew Pierre Cassette and Pierre Cassette hired me and Bob Shearer was with Pierre. And then Pierre, you know recommended Bob to the people at Paramount and then he did some shows and ended up on Star Trek. And then I came through Maury Hurley and then I ended up, it's like, and it all put me into this episode with these people. And I'm, I made a list of all the people and there's not many of us that are still alive Mm. um, from that era. Did you know uh, Mike Wagner? No, I didn't. Yeah. Mike Wagner died of brain cancer. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He, um, uh, I came in for, I think it was the Voyager pitch. Um, and he took the pitch and then I came back three weeks later with the outline and I said, I'm here for a meeting with Mike. And they said, well, sit down. And then I went in and it was Mike Pillar and no yeah. one said anything to me. And so I look up and I'm like, what? And then I could, and they just assumed out front that I knew. I said, Mike. And he goes, David. He goes, I'm expecting you. I go, where's Mike Wagner? He says, he passed away. He, he had to leave. He, he, you know, he had brain cancer. Wow. So, yeah. and then, and Mike Pillar is sadly now gone. And, and um, Maury, and it's just like, I look back at that era and I can remember being in Marshall and Jean's den and, and eating in their kitchen. And it's like, it's just, you took me back. You gave me a, a which I never would have been able to do on my own. I never would have 
pulled all this together because I started to think about it and say, what could I share with other people? So it's kind of like, um, for many of your viewers, we're talking about, you know, I came to Hollywood 45 years ago. And so it's a different era, but uh, I'm still connected to the, to the people that are still with us and the projects. And like, like I said, if I have another show or if I'm just on a show, I'm bringing you on. <laughs> You're like me when I was your age. It's like <laughs> quick and fast and you got it all. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys giving me this opportunity. No, we appreciate you, and hopefully we can have you back. We'd love to have you back and talk about the episode uh, "You're at the Enemy" as well as that Voyager episode. It'd be fantastic yep. to chat about the the Voyager. It's funny when I was preparing for this to catch up, I went and I said I looked, scrolled down, and I said, "Let me listen to the three episodes that I thought were my favorite episodes." And "Cause and Effect" by Brandon Braga. Yep. Yep. Yes, as a geek, that was to me the quintessential next gen star trek episode mm -hmm. yeah. and so i listened to his commentary and he was talking about it wasn't very emotional it was all gimmicky meaning but i'm like oh my god to honor that gimmicky i mean that was just brilliance and um my third the episode i did for voyager was a like a had time loop implications to it so yeah if you guys are ever interested if i didn't talk your ear off too much i love it i'll come back whenever you want that's fantastic. And now you got, a new list. you got a bunch of new listeners because not only am I now going to listen to everything you drop, but I've got all of my friends now turned on to it and they're catching up. So it's <laughs> like it, it was out there, but, you know, it, it wasn't visible to me. And now it's like first and foremost on my phone. So thank you so much. That's very nice. Um, so if fans out there want to uh, get in touch or see what you're up to these days, do you have a website or on socials or anything like that? Oh, me? Yeah. Now you can, um, it's like, uh, you can, I, I, should I give my email address? Cause I'll, will I be inundated? Right? Yeah, you, you probably might, will. Might, I, might, yeah. Let's, let's not, let's not do that. <laughs> okay. Well, I can give you we the want to spare email you. address. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Okay. Do they have, can they get a hold of you guys? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Here's what you do. I'm going to talk to the audience. I am full of empathy and love for almost everybody. So it's kind of like if, if I got 400 letters, it would F me up because I'd have to write you all back and then my <laughs> life would be over. So if you really have something and it isn't just, you know, good on you, but like if you want to talk or something, contact uh, Peter and Lisa. And, and if you can get through them, if they, and I, you don't have to call me. If, if the person sounds like they're going to come out to my house and with a, you know, a blowtorch, <laughs> no, but if the person is just wants to talk or wants to some insight or wants to connect, then give them my email address to those, to the individual person. Well, so then. it's an invitation. If you want to, you can get in touch with me, but I don't know what value I would have for you at my <laughs> advanced <laughs> state in life. But um, no, that's uh, very kind of you. Well, and, but if, if you're an aspiring writer that I'm good, I, I like to help people get their under their feet and do stuff. So I'll give you the tricks of the trade and then it'll be up to you to implement them. That's great. And listeners, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at Inglory, or I'm sorry, not at Inglory. That's the other one. Uh, at Trexperts BR on Twitter and uh, at Inglorious uh, or at Inglorious Trexperts on Twitter, but, and uh, Trexperts Briefing Room on Instagram. Um, I kind of remember that we just started our own separate feed and I keep forgetting that. <laughs> so I'm always defaulting to the other one. Hold on one second. 
yeah. just for me, I'm shooting a screen grab sure. because <laughs> Lisa's cat is perfectly <laughs> positioned for this photo. So now hang on. Yeah, he's doing it on purpose. <laughs> All right. So um, this cat is so <laughs> calm and so, so that, and here I'm a dog lover. That tells me a lot about you as a human being. That you have a calm cat. So that it's you always can learn a lot about um, people from their kids and their pets. Absolutely, and I'm just absolutely amazed. So when okay, uh, I've been and it's, I'm not going to go into the detail for the audience, but I've been battling health issues for a couple of years, and I've just recently crossed the threshold where. I was battling cancer and I'm free and my immune system's restored. I've got COVID and they told me just to wait a couple more months. Cause I, I had some serious issues and they said in May or June, you can get out and live a life. And if you're triple vaxxed and the other people are triple vaxxed, then you can take off a mask and live a life and you'll be back to normal. So I would love to have lunch or dinner with the two of you either separately or together because yeah, just my kind of people. So I'm going to keep that in mind. I'm going to bug you and you can come up with lots of creative excuses to duck me, but I, I will pick up the check. Okay. So that incentivizes you to come out just once. Sold. Okay. Are you sushi Thank, people? You. Thank you. That's awesome. Are you sushi people? Uh, I am. Okay. And I'm sure that you, the leftovers will be really good for your your uh, avatar <laughs> yeah. on your shoulders. So I don't think you go anywhere without that cat based on what's just going on for the past hour. Oh, look. Yeah. Oh, That's my so God. True. All right, you guys, I've taken enough time. Uh, it's just been a pleasure. You got me out of the house. <laughs> Absolute pleasure to have you here, David. And, and uh, definitely happy birthday two days early. Yes. Uh, happiest of birthdays Thank you. And, to you. And tell me, tell me what the feedback is. Uh, like, you know, what what people are thinking i'm hoping that people will enjoy what we've been doing absolutely absolutely and uh, lastly before we uh stop recording here we we want to thank our uh, sound engineer mark rivera for making it sound nice and pretty on these uh, zoom calls and the people at electric entertainment including executive producers dean devlin and mark a altman as well as producer natalie Mascali and uh, sound engineer bill ritter um, so for Lisa Klink and myself, we want to say thank you guys for being here. If you like our show, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. And uh, the briefing room is now closed. Mr. Scott, would you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves. Buttons being pushed. Instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.